The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. I'd like to welcome you to our look at the midterm elections. As we wrote this past weekend in Barron's, the 2022 midterms are the most consequential in years. Inflation is raging, the economy is cooling, and the rest of the world is a mess. The next Congress will face an unusual array of challenges at a time of growing political discord. Today, my Market Watch colleague Rob Schroeder and I will be speaking with experts who study politics and policy and how developments in Washington reverberate on Wall Street. The markets vote every day and investors need to stay informed. We'd like today's conversation to be interactive and that means we'd like to hear from you. If you have questions for our speakers, you can submit them using the chat box on the screen. Now, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome everyone. I'm Rob Schroeder. I'm the Washington Bureau Chief at Market Watch, and I'd like you to welcome uh, Henrietta Trace, who is the Director of Economic Policy Research at VEDA, and Kim Wallace, who's the Senior Managing Director at 22V Research. Thanks for joining us, Henrietta and Kim. Thanks for having us. So before that, uh, also a reminder uh, for our audience, if you do want to ask a question uh, of our speakers, please add it to uh, the Q&A chat box um, on the right of your screen. So let's, uh, let's jump right in. Um, Henrietta, we'll start with you, um, set the stage a little bit. Uh, we're about a week away uh, from Election Day. Uh, of course, polls show Republicans with uh, pretty much a lock um, on the House. Um, but even now, uh, the, you know, the Senate is up in the air. So where we are today, how do you see things uh, playing out? Great. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here and so happy to be joined uh, by Kim Wallace this morning. Really excited to hear from him as well. Um, my base case forecast is just as you suggest, the House is likely to see Republican gains anywhere between 10 and 30 seats. Um, the incoming speaker will be Kevin McCarthy, Republican out of California. Um, I have been speaking a lot with clients and investors about um, the year-end prospects, and we can sort of dig into that. But the House will be controlled by a tolerably sized Republican majority. The Republican caucus on the House side is very fractured or a big tent party uh, with a lot of Republican conservatives who will be coming in as freshmen. Um, and of course, a tremendously sized class that's been in since President Trump was elected. I believe it's something like 75 or 80 percent of the conference right now is newly elected as of 2016. Um, so a lot of fresh faces, a lot of um, time that Republicans have not been in control of that chamber. So it'll usher in an era of a lot more oversight and um, investigations into the Biden administration in 2023. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is because I anticipate that the Senate, no matter what, will not have a sizable enough majority to override whatever it is that President Biden will not want to do. Um, so the forecast that I have for the Senate, despite all of the enthusiasm we're seeing, um, I believe it's 21.8 million people have voted as of right now um, in early voting, which is a tremendous turnout. That portends an even-keeled election result. You often get a lopsided or wave election when very few people vote, and they're mostly from one party. One party is able to sort of punch above their weight class when there's a low propensity election cycle. That's not what we're going to get this time. Instead, it'll be a ton of voters from both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and that looks to me like a case where the Democrats are able to pick up Pennsylvania and most likely lose Nevada. And that will yield you, depending on the way Georgia goes, which we were just joking before, could go into a runoff. And I hope it doesn't. But if so, we wouldn't know the majority until uh, about mid-December. Um, the Senate looks like it'll be a 50-50 split. So you're left with a stalemate in Washington. Um, then I'm sure we'll dig in, Rob, uh, as we get into some questions about policy. 
Fantastic. Um, Kim, let me go to you and talk about some of these individual states. You know, as, as we just discussed, um, the Senate's certainly the more dramatic contest uh, next week. So let's pretend it's uh, election day, election night. Um, you know, what states should we be looking for uh, for clues about who's going to control Congress? I think Henrietta set it up very well. I would uh, that evening, that morning and the week following probably give most attention to Nevada, uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania. A uh, couple of things to watch uh, outside of those three states. You know, the undecided vote in polls is showing up unusually high. It's usually in the middle single digits. It's up to the higher single digits. That might play a role in some of these states. A good example, North Carolina has a history of undecideds pushing the vote in close races, uh, the entire state. Uh, South Texas, my home of Texas, South Texas joins that in a regional way, as does uh, the central part of California. So those are some areas to watch on that evening, maybe the following morning. Um, I know Henrietta is hoping for the uh, soonest outcome, as most of us are, but it, it looks like we're going to be doing this until December. It looks as though Georgia may really uh, tilt the balance in the Senate, which most pollsters think favors Herschel Walker in a turnout way. That being his best case is to convince Republicans in the state that the entire Senate is at play, not just one seat in Georgia. Great, uh, Kim, thank you very much. So let's think uh, both of you for a few moments about how we got here and, and really what'll be the big drivers next week and, and sort of leading up to these contests. Uh, you know, support for Democrats, I think, did pick up uh, just after the Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, but Republicans have gained momentum um, in polling over the past month with energy prices moving higher again, uh, very much on voters' minds. Um, so what do you think is going to decide uh, the outcome here? Um, Henrietta, please, you first, and then Kim, if you could. Yeah, the polling data has been like a roller coaster since June of this year. And that is not normal. Um, some of the sort of generic top line numbers from well-respected polls from Siena or the New York Times um, shows 34 point swings amongst female independent voters just from September to October. That is not realistic. Um, that's that's like asking, you know, 75 percent of your family members to change their opinion in a month. It's not going to happen. Um, so I think the polling data is picking up on um, just continued problems like we saw for the entire industry in 2016 and 2018. As, a, as someone who's watched these elections for so many cycles now, I get uncomfortable when I see massive swings because the American public just doesn't change their opinion that frequently. So what you're seeing is galvanization. And instead of looking at it as um, you know, who's convincing who to vote, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, I think a really good way to picture this is to step back and say, in a midterm election cycle, when one party controls the House, the Senate, and the presidential, that party has no business winning any races. They should lose everything. They should lose the House. They should lose the Senate. We saw that in 2010 in the wake of President Obama's election. We saw it in 2018 in the wake of President Trump's election. So it should be a similar situation here where Republicans are ahead in the generic ballot. They are picking up seats in the House and they should win the Senate, especially in the longest 50-50 split in history. Um, what has happened instead is an external force. The Supreme Court has stepped in as sort of a Republican um, proxy, and that's uh, tilted the balance or upset the cart. And now we're not just looking at the House, the Senate and the White House. We're also looking at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is trending in, in the case of both gun control and uh, family planning or abortion rights in the direction of Republicans so severely in a way that we haven't seen since the 70s that it's it's driving a lot of motivation on the other side. So you basically have two aggrieved caucuses, Republicans who are out of control in Congress and Democrats who are out of control in the Supreme Court. And what that has created is extraordinary enthusiasm. You're seeing turnout, um, as Kim just mentioned, across the board and in critical states like Georgia, in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania. Oddly enough, not a huge turnout in Nevada, which is annoying to all of us watching because they could easily decide the fate of the Senate. So we would like to see um, those voters go to the polls um, just to have a directional understanding of where we are. But it's pretty evenly split right now. But I think um, 
what we're seeing is a baseline situation where inflation, high gas prices, coming out of a global pandemic, uh, lingering supply chain issues, a war in Ukraine, uh, and a more increasingly aggressive China. Voters are just very uncomfortable. They should be opposing the majority party. And then you get this insertion of Dobbs. And um, I think that's what's driving the record high turnouts that we're looking at, uh, much more like a 2020 presidential election cycle than 2018. Right. Kim, let me uh, ask you to, to come in there. What do you what do you think? Oh, I agree that uh, turnout is in the early voting as high as we've seen in 2018. And it was also high in 2020. If it turns out uh, that this midterm uh, is a record, 2018 was a hundred year record. Uh, this matches that. And we'll, of course, start looking at 26, 2026 to find out if we have a trend in place. Right now, we, we maybe have a pattern. When you get a pattern like this, turnout matters most. And that sounds like a, a simple uh, statement. But my point is, governors usually do a very big job in driving turnout in elections. In this election midterm, we have six states where you have very compelling U.S. Senate races along with gubernatorial races. It doubles down on all the states we've been talking about. It's the Pennsylvanias, the Georgias, the Nevadas that we pay most attention to. You shouldn't leave Arizona out, although much of that is foregone conclusion, both in the Senate and in the uh, governor's mm -hmm. race. But will that matter to turnout in a way that might matter half a point here, half a point there in some key counties? Fantastic. Uh, both of you, uh, we've been talking about inflation, of course. So let, let's continue on a little bit about that. It's so important for our readers and uh, financial markets. Um, Republicans, of course, have, have blasted the Biden administration over high prices. They say his agenda has made inflation worse, uh, the situation worse. Um, Henrietta, to, back, to go back to you, um, as you know, uh, the House Republicans have unveiled what they call the uh, commitment to America. Um, can you break that down a little bit? And, and do you think uh, parts of it would be effective in, in attacking inflation? Sure. Um, the primary component of the Republican agenda, um, there, there are two that I think are most important for investors. Number one um, is making the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act permanent. Um, so these are tax cuts, uh, which is another way to say that would be federal stimulus. Um, the crux of the argument for Biden being responsible for inflation now is federal stimulus. So Republicans calling for additional federal stimulus via tax cuts um, is sort of incongruous with the inflation argument. Um, the other piece that I think speaks to the inflation argument is around the debt ceiling. Um, I mentioned Jim Jordan earlier. One of the um, loudest claims that he's uh, trying to have resonate with voters is to say, in 2023, when the Treasury Secretary breaches the debt ceiling somewhere in February, and we start to have to have a conversation about increasing the debt limit, should we try to rein in federal spending? That would be um, a way to combat inflation. The reality, though, as we just laid out, if our forecasts are correct, is that neither Democrats nor Republicans will have enough votes if the election turns out the way we think it will to enact either tax cuts or spending cuts or additional fiscal stimulus. So I think for in the investment community, um, knowing the outcome of the election is one thing, but anticipating that it'll materially change what legislation passes is not really tethered to that. I don't think really any legislation will pass in 2023 or 2024. Um, and so instead, we'll be getting a lot of jawboning, a lot of um, investigations, as I mentioned, and obviously that doesn't do much for inflation. Um, the one area where we could see some um, really interesting dynamics is around trade. And I know that we'll speak to that in a little bit. Um, the 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 usual outcome when you lose the House and the Senate for any administration is that they pivot to foreign policy. Um, the Biden administration has laid the groundwork for that, and I anticipate we'll see a lot of that in 2023, regardless of who wins the election. Um, but tax cuts, you know, ma maintaining and making permanent the 2017 tax cuts, which start to roll off at the end of last year, um, are the crux of the Republican um, argument and their contract. And obviously that uh, is not something that would bring inflation down. Right. Henrietta, thank you. This is a perfect segue, uh, Kim, to let's assume the Republicans uh, do at least win the House. 
And um, I'd like to ask about possible areas of compromise with the White House. So we've talked about these tax cuts. We've talked about uh, the debt ceiling. Um, or indeed, uh, you know, would the country just be in for two years of clashes? Well, before I get there, I have to pick up on some of the comments Henrietta made. Uh, you know, Congress does not have a good record, barely a record at all, of decent macroeconomic policy. It's not where you go to look for that. Um, you can complain about the title of the Inflation Reduction Act, just as some people complain about the uh, title of the 2011 bill, the Budget Control Act. Uh, Congress runs up deficits and debt until the markets say enough. My sense is we are entering a period where the markets are about to scream enough. It will come at a time when we are entering contraction, either contraction that doesn't last long and can be uh, tolerated, or one of a longer duration that does structural damage along the lines of what uh, uh, Professor Rogoff has written lately in Foreign Affairs. Uh, my sense is that markets are going to be displeased with what they see in macroeconomic policy for the next two or three quarters for this reason. The technicians at the Fed, the monetary policy technicians, are aware of politics, but they don't spend a lot of time on it. Elected officials who live politics every day for a job have very little attachment to finance or monetary policy or how it really works. And so there's going to be growing tension between a Fed that is focused on squeezing out the last of inflation that it can up to a point. And if that point exceeds into a recession, signals right now are that the Fed are not going to stop. Now, we've heard from Governor uh, Brainerd, Vice Chair Brainerd, and uh, San Francisco Fed Bank Chair uh, President uh, Mary Daly in the last two or three weeks that there may be some slowing of that opinion. But in the nearest of terms, the expectation is for the Fed to continue to squeeze the economy as a way to kill inflation. That sets up, I think, a focus where macroeconomic policies dominate. And so after you get through that and understand that the trials and tribulations of debt ceiling will set up some incongruent um, debates about squeezing spending but cutting taxes, uh, markets aren't going to favor that debate at the beginning. Uh, we don't think there'll be the ultimate stupidity. We don't see default, but you're going to have two quarters of increasing tension. What might they agree on? We think that for political reasons and geopolitical reasons, defense spending is likely to continue to bounce. It, it uh, came in uh, in 2017. It started to move up, uh, mainly on the backs of operations and maintenance, mainly health care. In the last three or four years, you've seen increases, real increases in R&D spending. That eventually spills over into procurement. When you couple that with the replenishment imperative, no longer just a need, it's an imperative, uh, given the Ukraine war, we think defense is a good place to look from a policy standpoint for some time to come. There is still a question about uh, financial services and whether or not the two parties can agree on, on regulation of smaller banks, and this growing push by the bank regulators on the regionals to increase the capital they carry and run with. And then finally, I point to Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act. Uh, there is growing pushback. It is not coalesced around one theme, growing pushback against the lack of accountability seen on Capitol Hill in both parties by what's known as big tech. Right. Thank you, Kim. Um, I I want to switch a little bit uh, to global politics, um, Henrietta, as you discussed, we, we wanted to talk about this a bit, uh, particularly China. Uh, you've, you've followed the, uh, the U.S. tariffs uh, imposed on you know, billions of dollars worth of, of Chinese products. Uh, and I'm wondering how the outcome of, of the midterms could affect uh, what's happening with those and, and China policy uh, you know, in general. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, as I mentioned, one of the routine outcomes of a midterm election cycle, especially where no caucus or no party is going to have 60 votes in the Senate, is the administration abandons its focus on legislative policy and sees what it can do on its own. Um, in 
as we saw from the Trump years, often that looks like a foreign policy or a trade focus. So to your point, we have $370 billion worth of tariffs currently in place against China. Um, there are routinely questions that I get from investors. Hey, you know, if, if Democrats can no longer pass legislation and inflation is still a problem, should we anticipate that some of those tariffs on China, whether from list one, three or four A come down, would you expect to see that? My answer is a very emphatic no. Um, what we are already teeing up is a race for the 2024 presidential election cycle. I apologize for bringing it up first, but that's really what's already in play here. Um, you see it from Senator Marco Rubio. We got a good um, example of that last week from Senator Hawley, who will certainly be a Republican candidate. Um, there are Democrats and Republicans who are effectively just trying to out China hawk one another. Um, and so that creates a situation where you're you're left really serving yourself if you ask, well, if I reduce tariffs against China, how are people going to respond? How are my other presidential competitors going to respond? And the answer to that is you're going to look soft on China. And that's not a winning forecast for anybody right now. Um, the Gallup uh, polling has been really consistent for several years now. 70% of Americans support being aggressive against China. That's an extraordinary threshold. Um, so I would anticipate all of the tariffs remain in place. Um, I am, you know, trying regularly to speak with the Office of U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Tai and see if they're preparing to launch another Section 301 investigation. Um, but a big picture for investors, I think the strain on semiconductors, batteries, um, and not just the manufacturer of those products, but also the packaging, testing, um, the production, all of that will continue to be a, a very serious focus of the United States, but then also of many of our allies, increasingly Germany and other EU nations, the UK, Japan, the Netherlands. Um, so coordination on that front, I think, will be really interesting to watch. Export control restrictions are a, 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 a tactic that the Bureau of Industry and Security has already has always been amazing at, uh, but it's gotten even more aggressive with and forward thinking or novel thinking about with the war in Ukraine. And you can just look at the sanctions that they've imposed on Russia there via export control restrictions. Um, and it extends across the board. I, some of the areas that I speak about with other foreign policy folks is um, shipbuilding, cement production, um, trade in not just steel and aluminum, but other major alloys, the semiconductors, the batteries, those pieces as well. Um, it, it's really all of the emerging technology, emerging economy focus, that is where this administration, and I believe the next one, regardless of the outcome, will spend their time. Okay, thank you, Henrietta. We only have a few minutes left, so I actually wanna to get to some of our uh, audience questions. Um, so Kim, let me go to you. Uh, one of them is, uh, and I'm reading here, if the Republicans do in fact uh, win both houses, how much freedom does the lame duck Congress have to spend more money uh, between election day and the next uh, Congress's inauguration? A key question. Uh, you know, if you look at predict it, they have Republicans winning 52-48 in the Senate. 538's latest model update showing their deluxe model has it as wide as 52-48 for Democrats. So as Henrietta has been saying, as we all have been seeing, this is going to be a close outcome. The question about the lame duck session, I think, drives again around money. There'll be a lot of other things they talk about, but they will start with money. If the backbenchers in the House are 10 to 30 seats in the plus going into the next Congress, Republican leadership are going to have a hard time selling them that they should pass a large omnibus spending plan that includes fresh FY23 money as opposed to rolling smaller continuing resolutions that don't have new FY23 money in. You'll see a pushback from the Senate where um, the leading Republican, Mr. Shelby of Alabama is retiring. He has set up throughout the appropriations process um, a Christmas basket for the state of Alabama. He's going to want to have that as his mark when he leaves. The Senate Minority Leader, Mr. McConnell is on the appropriations committee. Part of the omnibus is going to be to renew some of the smaller tax cuts that expired at the end of 21 that have not yet been renewed. One of them provides uh, incentives for horse breeders. There's a lot at stake going into the lame duck session. 
it's of course going to be driven by money. Um, it is not certain that uh, they'll be able to get through an omnibus, but that's the most important thing to watch in the lame duck in my view. Fantastic. Well, Kim and Henrietta, I'm actually afraid that we've come to the end of our discussion. We got through uh, a lot of questions and I wanted to thank you both uh, for joining uh, me today and to thank you uh, for our audience. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. I'm joined today by Isaac Boltanski, Director of Policy Research at BTIG, and Libby Cantrill, Managing Director and Head of Public Policy at PIMCO. Thank you so much for joining us, Isaac and Libby. Great to be here, thank you. Great to have you here. So as a reminder for our audience, if you'd like to ask a question of our speakers, please add it to the Q&A chat box to the right of your screen. So before we delve into policies, I thought I'd get your forecasts on the election. The consensus forecast is that the Republicans will retake control of the House. Nobody seems to know just where things will land in the Senate. But Libby and then Isaac, just tell me what your crystal ball shows. Yeah, I mean, when we when we all like to have a crystal ball, but I, I do think that our view here at PIMCO is, is pretty similar to the conventional wisdom. Um, Republicans will flip the House. It's just a question of margin. You could see anything between their, their winning 10 seats to winning 30 seats. I mean, of course, for Democrats, a five-seat majority. So a 10-seat uh, flip would still mean that Republicans would would take back the majority. So sort of under any scenario, uh, Republicans are likely to flip the House. The Senate, though, as you sort of point out, uh, is a different ball of wax. Uh, of course, Democrats are actually defending fewer seats. There are only th 35 seats up for re-election. Uh, Democrats are only defending 15, 14 of those um, uh, versus the 21 for Republicans. You know, I think that for all intents and purposes, control of the Senate will likely come down to three states, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania. Um, over the last week or so, we have seen polling trend more towards the Republican favor in all of those states, uh, but it, they really are very much toss-up, so it will uh, kind of depend on turnout, what have you. I will just say the last thing, uh, if, if sort of the, the, the recollections of 2020 aren't already incredibly present in our minds, and I'm sure for Isaac and me, uh, they very much are, but it, we could sort of see a scenario where Senate control comes down to Georgia, which then goes to a runoff, so we actually don't necessarily know who controls, which party controls the Senate until December 6th, which is the, the date of the runoff in, in Georgia this cycle. History repeating, in other words. Exactly. Isaac, what's your view or that of your crystal ball? I make it a point to, to never disagree with Libby when she's absolutely right. So <laughs> look, the House is going to flip. I, I think that we can all have a high degree of confidence in that. And from an investor perspective, that means divided government beginning next year. And so we can spend all day and I think it'd be fun to go through who is going to win in Nevada or Pennsylvania or Georgia, the three states that matter most. But when I think about the investment um, uh, stories that we're going to dig into during this and other events, I believe, it's going to be divided government, which means a Republican House at a minimum. Now, I don't think that they're going to get the 60 or 40 seats that some had thought originally. It might be a little bit tighter of a margin. Um, than soon-to-be Speaker McCarthy would have hoped for, but it's going to be a Republican House at a minimum. And I think that that in and of itself is what investors should take away. Does the size of the Republican majority matter in terms of policy? I Look, I think so. I'll jump in and, and just quickly say, to a degree, yes, in so much as there still needs to be some governing done. Right. And I'm personally a little bit concerned. And I think we'll talk about it later about some of these fiscal deadlines. Right. Whether it's government shutdowns or the debt ceiling or even the spending bills and some of the potential fiscal austerity efforts that go around that. So, look, a bigger margin is always better than a smaller margin, especially when you're trying to marshal votes on bills that folks, frankly, don't want to vote on. And so I think that's my one cautionary tale. Otherwise, no, the committee uh, leadership is going to push its agenda the way it was going to do previously, whether they had one um, uh, extra vote or 30. So to me, it's really just about those big vote moments. Yeah, Laura, maybe I can just add to that. I completely agree with Isaac. 
you know, ironically or maybe intuitively, a bigger margin for Republicans means probably less of a chance of a lot of brinksmanship around the debt ceiling. If there's, if, if, if Speaker McCarthy, you know, presumes Speaker McCarthy has a more narrow margin, it's just going to be a lot harder for him to control what is a very divergent conference, right? Like the Democrats, Republicans obviously have sort of two different wings within their own party, uh, and a smaller margin means a harder time to control that conference. You have a larger margin, a larger majority, you have more of a cushion. I would say the other read through from our perspective is to 2024, and a larger majority for Republicans in the House say they win kind of 20, 25 plus seats. That means it's going to be much more difficult for Democrats to regain the House in the 2024 cycle. And that's important because, of course, the Trump tax cuts uh, on the personal side all expire at the end of 2025. So who controls Congress, obviously who's in the White House uh, during that period of time really matters. So it has short-term implications, like Isaac said, from a policymaking perspective. It also has a bit medium-term implications from sort of the political perspective going into sort of the 2024 cycle. So before we get to 2025, we have the debt ceiling, which you alluded to. That will come up sometime in 2023. And many people feel that that is the most important issue facing the next Congress and probably the most important vote. So Libby, what's at stake here and how do you think that debate could play out? And why why does it matter? Why don't we start? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the debt ceiling is a little bit of a, it's, it's somewhat manufactured. Um, it, we are the only developed economy to have an actual debt ceiling. And it doesn't really have any sort of bearing on our spending because our spending process and the debt ceiling are completely divorced from each other. So uh, the, the, the debt ceiling, just think about that as like sort of paying off the credit card that you've already run up. Um, it's not, it's sort of divorced from the fact that you are still, you know, you're still putting putting money and charges on that credit card. Um, so it, of course, matters. Uh, the U.S. has the very rare distinction of having the reserve currency. Uh, it calls into question, like a real, you know, a, a real brinksmanship moment could call into question that. Um, and of course, we all have, for those of us who are covering at that point, I was, I'm sure Isaac was as well, back in 2011 when we came very close to um, uh not, not lifting the, the debt ceiling and therefore technically defaulting on our debt. Uh, we saw downgrades and we saw a risk asset sell off and what have you. We also then saw commensurate spending cuts uh, follow because that was sort of the deal to get the, to, to, to raise the debt ceiling. Now, I think you fast forward to, as you said, it's probably going to be kind of Q3, Q4, depending on revenues and what have you in 2023. You know, I guess I, and not to be too sanguine about it, because of course it's a risk, and of course you have to take it seriously. We're one of the biggest active debt managers in the world, so we do take it seriously. Um, but I think we've seen this movie before, and ultimately somebody blinks. Ultimately, Republicans don't want to be responsible for crashing the economy, for calling into question the reserve currency, particularly as it, as it relates to the 2024 cycle. Because remember, we're all going to be kind of deep into the sort of campaign process for 2024 in kind of late 2023. So again, I think this is, we have to take it seriously because they are already threatening, Republicans are threatening that if they take uh, power, that this will be something that's on their agenda. Um, but I guess I, I, I just think we've seen this movie before and ultimately, uh, you know, some party blinks because they know that it's the responsible thing, the responsible thing to do. Let's hope so. So let's look at fiscal policy more broadly. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to try to cool inflation and cool demand. And Fed policy works with a lag of about a year. So that suggests recession is likely coming next year. I'm curious how the midterms will affect the government's response to spending. Will there be some sort of fiscal stimulus to help people? Or is fiscal policy really kaput? Isaac, what do you think? You know, I'm reminded of, of that line that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And Lauren, I really think that at a minimum, we're going to have a Republican House and a Democrat in the White House. And what does that remind you of? Well, it reminds me of the 2011 to 2013 time period that Libby just talked about. And that's when we had to live through fiscal fights that included government shutdowns, uh, brinksmanship around the debt ceiling, and what passes as fiscal austerity in D.C. that came in the form of the Budget Control Act, 
which had some mandatory um, uh, spending cuts to it. And so, look, I, I would just say I agree completely with Libby that um, the debt ceiling itself is not something that I think I'm going to lose too much sleep about. We will eventually um, see a deal there. But I do wonder if that's going to include some sort of Rube Goldberg-like legislative mechanism like we saw back in that time period with the Budget Control Act. And so that's the one point I would make there in general. More specifically, Lauren, I'd just like to highlight that I get the question all the time from my clients, what happens if we have a downturn in 2023 in terms of the possible fiscal response? Here's the answer, not much. We are not going to see any degree of a, a similar response to the impending possible downturn like we saw over the past few years, in part because of the macroeconomic uh, dynamics, but also in part because there are going to be Republicans who got to Congress solely based on the inflation narrative. There will be literally no appetite for a fiscal response. And I think that's really important to underscore if we do see that downturn. And, you know, look, the consumer was able to make it through the crisis in large part because of that fiscal support. Um, I don't see that fiscal support coming back in any way, shape or form if we do have a downturn over the next two years. So Libby, would that put more political pressure on the Fed? It looks like monetary policy might be the only game in town. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just uh, sorry. If you were looking for disagreement on this panel, you're not going to apparently get it because uh, I completely agree with with Isaac. I mean, the way we're talking about it with our care with our clients is that you've had the Fed put, and that's sort of been taken away, taken off the table. I would argue that the fiscal put, sort of what Isaac is saying, is also now taken off the table. Um, particularly under the sort of split Congress or Republican Congress scenario. I'd also argue, though, that even if Democrats win, which they are very unlikely to, but even if they do, I'm not sure the appetite's going to be there either, um, partly because of just the increase in interest expense. There are real opportunity costs uh, that are now associated with government spending. Of course, there would be more appetite under that scenario than there would be under divided government, but I just, I just think in general, kind of the the view of sort of fiscal stimulus right now um, is it's it's sort of going out of out of favor. To your question, Lauren, does this put more political pressure on the Fed? Sure, although you have to remember that unlike last fall, and Isaac and I were just talking about this in the green room, unlike last fall when the Fed not only had the the chairman seat uh, empty, uh, but also had the vice chairman seat empty, had the vice chair of supervision seat empty, they were looking to fill a lot of uh, those Fed positions. Now you have a complete board, right? You have all seven board members. They've all been nominated. They've been confirmed. So they're a little bit less sensitive to the politics here, um, just because nobody is actually looking for uh, for confirmation. And you know, our view is that the Fed will continue to be hawkish for the foreseeable future. Uh, and you know, they they they're very concerned about the 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 one side of their dual mandate, right? They are concerned about price stability and not as much about full employment. Um, and so they are going to likely uh, entertain and um, and digest an increase in unemployment for that sake of really getting those inflationary pressures under control. So I guess the long way of saying, again, I don't think the fiscal, I don't think there's the, the fiscal game's not really in town. I don't think that really the Fed is going to come to the rescue either. So both of those puts, I think, in our view, have been sort of taken off the table for the at least for the foreseeable future. Well, that's somewhat ominous when we look ahead. But let's talk about some specific areas of the market that we're focused on. Energy policy, for one. The S&P 500 Energy Index is up almost 60% this year, which is extraordinary. It makes energy the best performing sector by far. How do you think a split government will impact energy policy? Libby, you want to take that one? Yeah, and I think that energy is one of those areas. If you look at the kind of Venn diagram of issues, energy policy, um, very narrow energy policy is one of the things that you could see a Republican Congress or a split Congress pass and send to uh, President Biden's desk for you uh, to, to be signed into law. But that really is going to be the limiting factor, right? Republicans can pass whatever they want from a symbolism, from a messaging perspective. But in order to actually be effectuated and get signed into law, it has to be able to get signed by, of course, the Democratic president, President Biden. Um, and so, so if you just think about the issues, 
the energy permitting bill that uh, was promised to Senator Joe Manchin uh, that would be considered on the lame duck. That doesn't necessarily look like it will come up um, in the lame duck session, which is, of course, the session after the election before the new Congress uh, comes into power in January. Um, so, I, you know, our anticipation is that you could see something kind of minor on the energy permitting um, you know, reform. So I, I don't want to make, I don't want to overstate the impact of this. I think most CEOs and energy companies will say, yeah, this is helpful to margin, sure, but is it like the silver bullet? Not really. Um, but again, it would be, would be helpful to margin. The last thing I'll say though, Lawrence, I think there is some confusion about this, is the policies in the Inflation Reduction Act. And of course, we saw a massive down payment in terms of investment on renewable, uh, spending on, on renewable and, and green energy. That is not going anywhere. So even if Republicans come to power, and even if they win both chambers of Congress, uh, those provisions that are, are now settled into law are going to be there for at least the next two years. I would argue that it's very hard to take benefits away, uh, kind of regardless of the politics. So I would um, think that even beyond that, but at least for the next two years, regardless of the midterm election, those energy provisions, the renewable energy provisions and the Inflation Reduction Act are not going uh, you know, away any, anytime soon. Thanks for clarifying that. Isaac, you've been writing a lot about crypto regulation or the likelihood, um, excuse me, cannabis. That's what I thats what I meant to ask you. And you've been watching closely the prospects for cannabis banking legislation. What do you see ahead, both in a lame duck Congress and in the new Congress? Yeah, look, I think cannabis is a uniquely intriguing area and it really puts to a test federalism that it's, and it's, um, at the highest level here, because we have states that have moved pretty aggressively on this front, and we have another five states that are considering um, uh, considering legalizing recreational cannabis in some way, shape, or form. They would join the 19 that already have. And so the problem here is a fundamental incongruity between federal law, where cannabis is illegal under uh, the Controlled Substances Act. It's a Schedule One drug under that law. Uh, and then state law, where we have uh, legal operations on the medicinal and in some states, uh, the recreational side. My sense here, Lauren, is that we have probably the best chance we've had thus far to get cannabis banking legislation done um, in the lame duck. And the reason why, um, in my opinion, is you've actually seen a wave of crime, especially out west um, in these dispensaries, because Lauren, it's a cash heavy business, which attracts crime. And that's really changed some of uh, the conversation on the Hill, coupled with what we think will be some additions to the bill that make it more palatable to progressives dealing with things like restorative justice and social equity. Um, the plus in safe banking is what it's usually referred to. So look, I'm optimistic that we get cannabis banking done. It's the best shot yet. And then from there, it slows down on the federal side, Lauren. There is simply no interest uh, for federal legalization. I don't even think all 50 Democrats would agree to that. Going back to a point Libby made earlier about fiscal policy, here I don't think that you would get Manchin or, or uh, Shaheen or others. So um, it's a long road to, um, to any action from Congress. The only bright spot is the order from the president a few weeks ago to review how cannabis is scheduled. We'll see how that plays out, but that's in and of itself multi-year effort. So more state level progress, maybe a little bit of banking, not much more. All right. Since I mentioned crypto, uh, Libby, I'll ask you, both parties want to draw up some sort of regulatory guidelines regarding cryptocurrencies to make them safer, to even define what they are. How do you think the next Congress will approach the issue of crypto? Yeah, if, again, if you go back to that kind of Venn diagram of issues where there is some overlap between the parties, crypto is in that uh, is in that Venn, Venn diagram, although, again, sort of like energy policy, um, I would just keep your expectations relatively low to, in terms of the actual substance of what we see. But we could see a bill. Um, there has been some movement, uh, both in the Senate and the House, and there have been actually several bills that have been introduced. Um, but I do think that there is an appetite, at the very least, at the minimum, for some sort of regulatory clarification around sort of what is, of course, what sort of is defined as a security versus a commodity and, in terms of crypto. And then as a result, uh, sort of which regulatory body gets 
the, the broader remit. Um, lots of folks, um, particularly on the Republican side, but even I think there are lots of Democrats too, would like to see the CFTC having a, a broader remit as it relates to crypto. That's sort of the assumption that the CFTC has been more market-oriented historically as a regulator, um, that the current regulator is maybe a little bit perceived at least as a little bit less ideological than the chairman of the SEC. Um, so it would be, um, again, I think at, at a bare minimum, we could see crypto legislation that would just clarify sort of the remit, the sort of jurisdictional uh, lines. But anything broader than that um, is likely going to be harder, just given, again, the dynamic of either Republican Congress or split Congress and, and, and Biden in the White House. So I would keep expectations low, but if we're going to see something on policy, as it relates to a split government, crypto is one of those uh, one of those issues. Isaac, any thoughts there? You're nodding. Yeah, look, I, I've been nodding with everything Libby says, so maybe I'm not I'm not a good co-panelist. But um, you know, on this one, I would say that what I found interesting is yes, there's agreement, and there's a bill out of Senate Agriculture where you've seen some industry support, even some consumer advocates have come out in support of it. But the reason that there's so much support is it doesn't tackle some of the really sticky issues. You know, we're still going to fight over what the definition of a security is. And ultimately, I think that sort of central question is one the courts are going to have to answer, because I don't know if this Congress or the next Congress or even the Congress after that one is going to have the capacity to answer that. And so there are a number of cases we're following in, in numerous jurisdictions um, that I think could eventually uh, go to the highest court and we'll decide there. But I agree there, there's going to be incremental progress on things that are simple, like stable coins, lawmakers kind of understand what a stable coin is. It's a bit like a bank deposit, but it's not. It's a little bit more like a money market fund. They can wrap their arms around it. So that's a good area of action next year. So let's go to some listener questions. Ed asks if in a divided government, there is some sort of appropriation process whereby a Republican House or Senate can slow or stop already approved spending from the current Congress and administration. Go ahead, Isaac. All right, I'll just say this. A law is only as strong as the most recent Congress, right? And that's a general good rule of thumb, but you still need the president to sign it. And I think that's the important part here. So we're going to have to deal with a lot of messaging bills is what we refer to them um, next year and a lot of grandstanding on these things. But, you know, we, we'll go back to schoolhouse rocks and how a bill becomes a law. It's got to get out of the Capitol, but then it's got to be signed by the president. And so well, I think that we'll have some pretty austere budgets from uh, House Republicans, for example. Um, they're not going to become law either through the Senate, uh, where you need 60, or the president. Libby, Ed asks also if the administration's goal is to implement a windfall profits tax on the energy industry, can that be done in the lame duck period between Election Day and Inauguration Day? I mean, it could be theoretically, but it won't be. Um, this is one thing that, I mean, it's, you know, and not to be totally cynical here, but uh, I just saw the headline come over Bloomberg, but yes, it says uh, that once again, this is uh, sort of the messaging point that the president is using. Um, this does seem to resonate well with voters. So this is, he's doing this for a reason, that sort of politics supports this, this idea of kind of vilifying and demagoguing energy companies. Um, and and proposing a windfall tax but this is very unlikely to come into to, to be signed into law either in the lame duck or of course in the next session of of congress and this is something this type of headline is something that really won't get any sort of traction or any sort of attention in the next congress this is one of the i think the the um the consequences if you have at least the the house flipping is that these kinds of things um just our, our sort of dead on arrival. So, and I would argue dead on arrival, even in the lame duck session, but particularly in the next session of Congress. Fair enough. We have a question about the likelihood of Congress agreeing on a change to Section 230's liability protections for tech companies. Either of you have thoughts there? Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, look, I, I think that there are some real questions about big tech and the platforms use of power. And I think we're seeing it on display just over this weekend um, in with one of the companies. And I, I will say that we've got a lot of good questions being asked. I just don't know if Congress is anywhere near answering. them. And I think that's evidenced by the unbelievably uphill battle that some of these big tech antitrust bills have faced 
uh, on Capitol Hill this year. And if you have a trifecta, the White House and both chambers of Congress and Democrats are broadly in agreement, at least conceptually, and you still can't pass that bill, it's tough to expect us to, to be able to do much. And last point is I would also say that we have both too many cooks in the kitchen and they don't agree on what they're cooking, right? So you've got FTC and DOJ and Congress and the state, and some are concerned about uh, content being uh, being screened, and some are concerned about free speech, and others are concerned about market power and, and cannibalizing innovation. So you tell me, but none of that seems like imminent action. Hey, Laura, I would just add to that. I completely yeah. agree with that. Privacy is the other issue that um, there's been sort of a bill that has been you know, sort of theoretically um, had support from both both sides and has not gotten any any traction. So that's sort of, I think, a piece of, you know, kind of data to point to that even though folks like to talk about the big tech, like kind of like the de demagogue at Vegas or bad in, in Washington, um, there really hasn't been unanimity. I will just say one nuance that maybe people don't appreciate, too, is that tech is a, is a partisan issue in some ways, although I think the Democrats and Republicans kind of agree that you know, they're skeptical of big tech, but then skeptical for, for various reasons. But even within the Democratic Party, there's actually some geographic differences. So there are many um, Democrats who represent Silicon Valley who are also reluctant to support these sort of broad um, uh, user tech regulations. So that's kind of a nuance within the Democratic Party that I'm not sure folks appreciate. So again, it breaks down on ideological um, uh, grounds, but also breaks down on geographic ones as well. And I love the point, I'm sorry to throw in there. The current speaker is from where? California. The likely next speaker is from where? California. So, I mean, we can we can list all the hurdles for you. Fair enough. So our time is up, but let me just ask each of you quickly, what's one big surprise that we might see from the new Congress? Isaac, then Libby. From Congress? Yes, from the next so, Congress. I think I think the one surprise is one that I'm hopeful for that they actually don't make us sweat through a, a debt ceiling and the market doesn't have to be the one who forces them to act like adults and and uh, clear the debt ceiling. That would be nice. Would be. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, I'm not sure it would be a surprise because they're messaging it, but I, I also think that we could see House Republicans move to sue the administration over the student loan cancellation policy. Mm. Remember that they sued. Uh, the Obama administration over Obamacare with the argument that it's actually uh, the Congress has the fiscal power, not the, the power of the purse, so to speak, not the president. Um, they were successful in that lawsuit. I could I very uh, sort of imagine them uh, pursuing a lawsuit on the same sort of grounds and actually have standing. One of their issues with the student loan issue is that nobody in these uh, these court cases have actually been able to prove standing, prove injury. Uh, House Republicans might be able to. I think the three of us can be can agree it's going to be a very interesting and exciting couple of years. Thank you so much, Isaac and Libby, for joining us today. Great conversation. That it concludes our program. And thanks to all our speakers and, of course, to everyone who took the time to join us today. A video replay of today's discussions will be available soon on barons.com slash video. Please join us for our next Barons Roundtable on Navigating Inflation on Thursday, November 10th. Thanks again, everyone. Stay safe. Have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.